Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Teaching a Man to Fish in a Steel Mill in Gary, Indiana. Hometown, same town blues. All of today's music comes from Uncle Tupelo. This is Graveyard Shift, off of their 1990 release, No Depression. Today we discuss the work of the late Noel Ignatiev, using the memoir that has just been published by Charles H. Kerr. It's called Acceptable Men, Life in the Largest Steel Mill in the World. That steel mill is the Gary Works of U.S. Steel, which was indeed the largest steel mill in the world in 1972, the year that Ignatiev began working there. The title for the memoir comes from Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verse 7. For gold is tried in the fire, and acceptable men in the furnace of adversity. That same chapter advises us not to make haste in a time of trouble. And I recommend that when you read Acceptable Men, you spend some time with it. It's brief and straightforward, yet its deeper intentions are subtly revealed when you return to it and read it a second or third time. In other words, read it not in haste in our times of trouble. Noel Ignatiev, who died in November of 2019, worked for over 20 years in steel mills, farm equipment plants, and machine tool and electrical parts factories. He was a prominent member of the Sojourner Truth organization, co-founder and co-editor of Race Trader, Journal of the New Abolitionism, and the managing editor of Hard Crackers, Chronicles of Everyday Life. He was perhaps best known as the author of How the Irish Became White, published in 1995 a book that has been called Pathbreaking and Essential. Today's show features two guests. First is John Garvey, a Brooklyn native and lifelong New York City resident who was a leading activist in the Taxi Rank and File Coalition in the 1970s. He then worked as an educator in New York City jails and headed the Teacher Academy and Collaborative Programs at the City University of New York and he's an editor of Insurgent Notes. He worked with Ignatiev as editor on both Race Trader and Hard Crackers. Then we'll turn to Michael Staudenmeyer, an assistant professor of history at Manchester University in North Manchester, Indiana. He teaches and writes about Chicago's Puerto Rican community and the role of race, racism, and anti-racism in United States history. He is the author of Truth and Revolution, A History of the Sojourner Truth Organization, 1969-1986, published by AK Press, for which he interviewed Ignatiev multiple times. We begin with John Garvey and Ignatiev's seminal study, How the Irish Became White. It's one down, there's much you miss Working on that graveyard shift And now, teaching a man to fish in a steel mill in Gary, Indiana on Interchange on WFHB.
give us, uh, John, just kind of a, a brief bit about Knoll's, I guess, w- what Knoll is known for? I'll give it a try. So, you know, Noel had gone to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia for three years, and then he dropped out. He didn't go back for his senior year. And he, st- he stayed working at a summer job that he had gotten in a factory in Philadelphia and basically decided at that point that for the foreseeable future, he was going spend his time and energy in in workplaces getting to know the workers getting to understand what their you know what their realities were like what their what their convictions were what their dreams were and devoted himself to the kind of the very serious prospect of a socialist revolution now he had previously been part of a political organization this was not new but the commitment to going to work in a factory was and he remained you know an active factory worker for more than 20 years, uh, most of that at the end or around Chicago rather than Philadelphia or, or New York, where he worked briefly. Towards the end of the 1960s, he, he had been in this group called the Provisional Organizing Committee, and he was expelled. Uh, he was, you know, he, and he kind of uh, he kind of describes it in some of the things he's written as finding himself. Oof, <laughs> what am I going to do now? And what he realized is that he had been freed. He had been free to think as he wanted to think and to write as he wanted to write and to act as he wanted to act. And the very first thing that he publicly did was he co-authored a small pamphlet called The White Blind Spot, which was a very succinct argument that kind of the, the and he was specifically, it was intended as a rejoinder to the arguments of the Progressive Labor Party which this is ancient history for some people, which was then a reasonably powerful force on the left and specifically was making an attempt to take over SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. And one of their main arguments was that what the kind of the key task was for all of the workers, black and white, to unite and fight, and specifically for, if necessary, for black workers to subordinate any kind of interest they had to address the discrimination that they faced at work and elsewhere needed to be subordinated to the cause of unity because the white workers would never go along with the fight for black equality. Hmm. Noel's argument in White Blind Spot was that was a poison, poisonous choice, okay? And if the white workers chose to defend inequality and to refuse to make common cause with black workers, on behalf of black equality, the prospects for them ever doing much of anything were very slim. But that was the core conviction of his life. But he did go to graduate school and he eventually authored a book which is called How the Irish Became White, which is a very you know, nuanced study, mostly of the 19th century of the experience of Irish immigrants, mostly on the East Coast of how basically initially having been greeted by the kind of then native population, the native white population, as being you know, no better than the slaves, no better than the Negroes, okay, characterized as apes and, you know, and, and monsters and all sorts of awful things, slowly but surely were able to turn the kind of situation to their advantage and to gain acceptance as being white rather than as being somehow equivalent to black. Noel's argument was that what that what is perceived by some as a victory, a triumph over nativism, in fact, was a terrible, terrible defeat. When the Irish made, you know, basically chose to be white rather than be kind of make common cause with the black slaves at that point initially, and then black workers, that was a terrible defeat for them uh, and for others. 
And so that Noah continued to hammer away at those kinds of core principles and themes for, you know, 40 years. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm 50 years. I'm yeah, 50 years and more. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Teaching a Man to Fish in a Steel Mill in Gary, Indiana, on the posthumously published memoir of Noel Ignatiev, Acceptable Men. Our guest in this segment is John Garvey, who co-edited with Ignatiev the journals Race Trader and Hard Crackers. The other thing that, you know, kind of was important for Noel is that as he, you know, went into those workplaces and kind of saw what the kind of the typical workings of the trade unions were in these mostly pretty rotten, miserable factories, okay, that he increasingly came to understand unions weren't there as a way of advancing the workers' interests vis-a-vis the bosses, okay, but rather their role was to preserve the existing state of affairs within a certain set of acceptable boundaries, and that they were very seldom willing or prepared or able to fight a serious battle on behalf of the workers as workers. And the more that he continued to work in factories and thought about it and wrote about it, he became increasingly convinced that the unions were not, you know, a way forward, but rather an obstacle to the possibility of the working class realizing itself as an active subject in what might become a revolutionary process. And so then in 1969, when he was in Chicago, he and a handful of other peoples formed the Sojourner Truth Organization, which is, as you mentioned in our earlier conversation, Doug, has been chronicled well by a man named Michael Stoudemire. And, you know, it's something worth reading by everyone. And so for, for the 20 odd years of its existence, Sojourner Truth was distinguished in the broad landscape of the American left by its two pillar convictions, okay, of one, that the fight against white supremacy was central to the possibility of working class activity, and that the unions were an obstacle, not a kind of a vehicle for that activity. There's clearly, a, you know, the, the wages of whiteness that Du Bois talks about is, is sort of runs all through these kinds of argument that uh, that the, the white working class had made these, maybe not even explicit, right? But the, the tacit, the tacit um, agreement that the, the crumbs will be better than what, uh, what we offer the, the black worker in America. The terms of that bargain, that poisonous bargain came, you know, sometimes directly and explicitly, other times subtly and, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of, I'm just going to go along to get along. I'm not especially, you know, kind of a rabble rouser. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to burn anyone's car. I'm not going to stop anyone from going into an integrated school. But, you know, more or less that the workers accepted the terms of the deal as they were and uh, kind of gave up, you know, kind of something very important along the way. But yes, you're absolutely want to emphasize even going back to White Blind Spot, the, the text I spoke of from 967, you know, Noel quotes Du Bois and relies very heavily on his very, you know, kind of provocative analysis of the nature of the relationship between the black worker and the white worker in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I guess we need to, um, you know, point out, I suppose, that the union has always been fairly, um, you know, segregationist or racist itself generally. I mean, there are, of course, better union organizations than others. I think that's right to say, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. in general terms, it took a long time to crack through some of the barriers that had been established 
more often, frankly, by the workers themselves or by the unions themselves. They were not legislated, kind of the the restriction on union membership and things like the kind of the establishment of of seniority systems, which systematically favored the the white workers and disfavored the black workers. It's a long, complicated history. Let's jump into the book. As we said before, it's uh, it's not long, but it's uh, it's like pow- like little powerful chapters of personal anecdotal that occasionally broaden out into into making larger points. But the the points are just in the activity of the work life itself um, in the book. And and I will say that it's funny. I just uh, I I kind of kept thinking of a Melville short story throughout in terms of the you know the names of the characters. And these are people, not characters, obviously. But uh, with sour wine and nicknames. Names like Polecat and and things of that nature kind of sounded like a uh, you know Bartleby short story or uh, the the activity in the industry itself has kind of that Triworks chapter in Moby Dick where they're turning blubber into oil. Um, it's kind of a updated you know 19th century uh, story about the industrial workplace you know moved moved to the middle of the 20th century. Well, I assure you, okay, then what you just said would be music, would have been music to Noel's ears, okay, <laughs> kind of the notion of being compared favorably to Melville. But I think you're right. I think that it was, you know, kind of that those, the choices of the, and, and I, for example, I don't know uh, anything about the names of the characters in Noel's book, about whether they were you know, real names or mm-hmm. his invented names. I don't know. But anyway, his crafting of the stories, you know, a number of occasions I've said, that my guess is that Noel was a very talented storyteller to start with, even going back to his childhood, mm-hmm. but that his time in the steel mill allowed him to perfect his talent, okay? That he learned to listen very, very well. He learned to watch very, very well. Now, part of that was that he was, when he went into the mill, there was an awful lot that he had to learn. He was not quite, even though he'd been working in factories for 10 years by that point, he was not quite ready for work in a steel mill. A very complicated dirty, dangerous, you know, kind of like bewildering kind of environment where the kind of possibilities of things going terribly wrong, you know, are present all the time. And that what one of the things that he conveys, it is only because of the extraordinary versatility and self-acquired knowledge of many of the workers that things work at all, that that problems get fixed, you know, and that over and over again, it's illuminated that had the workers simply followed the rule book, you know, the prescribed manual, this is what you do when, the whole thing would have come crashing down. And it was only because of their willingness to be you know, inventive, to see a problem and to decide new ways of, of looking at it and, and fixing it, that it all held together. Right. Uh, and so I think it is, and it, it has something of the character of it's not quite the, the, the whale ship it's not quite <laughs> right. you know, but it, it it has certainly a, a lots of different dimensions of that uh and the uh you know minus an ahab and, you know, <laughs> yeah there's no thing. ahab that's right that's the one one thing it's missing uh, I, I, closer uh, to, closer uh, to bartleby maybe but uh well, no it's yeah. closer to bartleby yeah. and, and 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 actually i think that it's another way it's like bartleby it is mostly pretty understated, you know, the yeah. style of the writing. Yeah. It's not over the top. He allows the story told in a very, most of the time, in a very measured tone yeah. to basically be the center of it and not his right. his flourishes. I mean, yeah. you know, he kind of occasionally kind of like cracks a good joke. Walking about, like a change in point of view. 
Sergeant slipping away. It's time for a break. This is Factory Belt, another from Uncle Tupelo's 1990 release, No Depression. When we come back, we'll jump into the middle of Acceptable Men, a memoir of life in a steel mill by Noel Ignatiev. Stay with us for more Teaching a Man to Fish in a Steel Mill. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Teaching a Man to Fish in a Steel Mill in Gary, Indiana. In this segment, we'll get deeper into some of the stories Noel Ignatiev relates in his memoir, Acceptable Men, which has recently been published by Charles H. Kerr. Walking about, well, I've said, but after seven years of factory bell, it gets in your head. Looks like it's time The best thing they try to do is not work, you know, sleeping, catching up breaks, uh, you know, playing cards, et cetera, you know, is a, is a, a central focus of the book. Yeah. I mean, and, it, it, and that leads to some incredible stories that, right. you know, capture that. I mean, the, you know, kind of the scene, for example, where the kind of the kind of people on the crew are sitting in the shanty, as it was called, you know, kind of playing cards. And one of the supervisor comes in right. and wants them to do something. They, and they say to him, can you see we're busy? <laughs> right. I mean, over and over again, the steel mill was one of those places where, unlike almost any other factory that Noah was aware of, and certainly unlike places where I've worked, where the kind of where the hierarchies that were reflected in you know the, the helper, the master worker, the foreman, the supervisor, okay, often enough broke down. Okay, mm-hmm. that it was not uncommon for foremen and even supervisors to actually get down in the dirt, okay, and to work side by side with the regular workers to fix a problem. Because often enough they had risen through the ranks, they had not been imported from elsewhere. And that at the same time that they were willing to cross over socially and to in some ways to to make common cause with the workers that they were nominally supervising to outside of the boundary of the accepted, you know, kind of practices. I mean, you know, you're not supposed to sleep while you're getting paid. But there are stories in the book where basically, you know, the one hilarious moment, one of the foremen is sleeping on top of a bench. And another worker is sleeping under the bench and he's trying to make sure and the top doesn't find him there. You know? <laughs> and at one point, the guy on the top looks over and it says, and the worker says, if you don't tell, I won't tell. It captures those, you know, kind of like wonderful moments of people partially making the best of a bad situation, kind of getting a certain kind of deep satisfaction over pulling things off, over kind of getting, you know, kind of like 
breaking the rules and getting away with something. Uh, but oftentimes in the cause of always establishing and reestablishing a deep sense of camaraderie amongst the workers. Perhaps the funniest story in the book, no love to fish. Uh, and so one day he and another worker, two other workers, okay, went off to fish in this lake where they thought, I forget what the type of fish was, that they were gonna they were gonna get lots of fish. Perch. They fished for four, five, six hours, okay, and didn't catch a single fish. Yeah. Well, what are we gonna do? Because all these people back at the mill are waiting for them to bring the catch back so they can have a fish fry. And so they decide they're going to stop at a local fish market and they're going to buy the fish and they swear each other to secrecy. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> uh, and they bring it back, of course, and then have their fish fry. Uh, right. And uh, there's a, a bit of self-deprecating humor about the kind of the everyday lives of the workers that Noel describes, himself included at times, okay? Right. That's, I think, a very, very important aspect of the the vibrancy and the dignity of uh, of people at work under you know really crappy circumstances how they manage to do that they do not allow the workplace to obliterate who they are and who they might be in terms of those kinds of relationships with each other right what i thought was really pretty um, great about the book too it's you know it's it's basically jackson's book i suppose as much as it's noel's book because noel is is learning from jackson the whole time and a lot of what he does he can do because he's jackson's helper uh, as part of his job or you know in 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 training i guess but the other thing that he does in the book obviously is start out telling a little bit about himself his maternal grandparents being uh, socialists and communists. Uh, his parents ha or his mother having been brought up in the party, uh, his father radicalized by the depression. Uh, but then he also gives us a background of, of Jackson's uh, family uh, growing up in the South, in Mississippi as sharecroppers. There is a novelistic character to much of the book, yeah. right? And, and Noel, you know, there were times when Noel thought maybe it should be a novel, mm -hmm. uh, and, and no, no less true, no less you know, right. you know insightful, and and I think that kind of this sort of what you just captured is an example of that. That uh, and actually, I think he, I, you know, I didn't count the pages, but he may very well have as many pages to telling the backstory of Jackson's life before working in the mill mm -hmm. as he told of his own life before working in the mill. Right. That you know, th those were two equally important stories to kind of to keep in mind as you read the whole thing. Jackson's family, apparently, when they had subsequently they had moved to Missouri and there was in 1938, there was this big sharecroppers strike uh, that's been chronicled by a lot of different people, including CLR James. Uh, the Apparently, Jackson's family was part of this somewhat epical kind of challenge to the existing state of affairs in Southeast Missouri. Yeah. His family had played more than a small part in kind of in the history of of Missouri and of other things beyond that. I mean, kind of think about it after all these days that people are still reading about a, a strike that, that involving thousands of sharecroppers in 1938 in Southeast Missouri. That's pretty remarkable. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Teaching a Man to Fish in a Steel Mill in Gary, Indiana, on the posthumously published memoir of Noel Ignatiev, Acceptable Men. Our guest in this segment is John Garvey, who co-edited with Ignatiev the journals Race Trader and Hard Crackers. Mm -hmm. 
So it is a memoir, um, and memoirs, as we, I think, all know at this point, are true, but yet are crafted in the same way you craft fiction. Um, you choose what you leave in, you choose what you leave out, right? Uh, so even if even if the names are exactly correct, Noel's doing the work of a writer. In terms of its craft, I was just thinking about that chapter you were talking about, the fishing chapter, right? Uh, where, where they sneak a, uh, well, like Noel says, he has a, a motor that he has that he can't get to work, so he has it. Uh, he sneaks it in via the, I think, a foreman yeah. is able in, to in the back of his pickup yeah, truck. Is able to drive it onto the steelworks and fix it, and you know, talk about going fishing and decide to go fishing. But that chapter is is smack dab in the middle of the book, right? It's chapter nine. I think there are seventeen chapters, so eight before, eight after. Um, it's, yeah. and it's really kind of a teach a man to fish chapter but at the same time as a teach a man to steal chapter, because a, bi- a big part of it is stealing stuff from, oh, yeah. from the factory. Also, it's really a, re- it's really a great chapter. Noel was certainly aware that, you know, there were times when he probably, you know, was sacrificing a certain kind of precision and detail about one thing or another because he was aware of, a, of another kind of purpose that he had, that he wanted to kind of craft it. That story really needed to be one that illuminated many different things all at the same time. Right. And, you know, as here I end with time. And I think there'll be an interesting analysis to be done of the, of the memoir. I've kind of seen it as, you know, a book about the theft of time. Yeah. First, the theft of time by the kind of the, the mill owners, by the by U.S. Steel, stealing the, the lifetime of all those thousands of workers. And then the kind of the theft of time backwards. OK, you know, kind of not quite theft. OK, by those same workers of I'm going to take back some of the time that you've stolen from me any way that I can. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to do something faster and I'm going to make it sound like it took me longer. I'm going to, you know, kind of the the scheme that he talks about at one point of the kind of workers in a particular group rotating, calling in sick and with the expectation that each time someone calls in sick, someone else will get an extra shift of overtime. And then two weeks later, the person who got the extra shift of overtime will be able to call in sick. And at the end of it, okay. No one loses anything except the company, perhaps. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, perhaps we could really worth emphasizing is that the work of most great fiction or art more generally is not work that happens divorced from the details and the specificities of everyday life. It's fashioning an artistic understanding of those details and specificities that you achieve. One of the ways in which you can achieve you know, significant artistic you know, kind of beauty. Mm-hmm. And and actually, I think that it's not it's not out of the question to to, to talk about Noel's book in terms of its beautiful characteristics. Let's not simply read it as a straightforward account. Yeah, no, it's it obviously is is a, a work of extreme craftsmanship that you know you could I guess set next to a, a poetry volume in in terms of how it wants you know the parts to play off each other, but as you say, also needs to contend with the issues at hand. You know, the discrimination, the segregation, uh, as you say, the the horrifying work conditions, um, the the problem of women in the workplace, which is you know there are there are not very many women at the workplace, but they are treated horribly <laughs> in terms of their jobs, in terms of not having any real representation. You know, there's just all sorts of stuff going on in here. And it happens in such a brief space that allows you to really sort of give yourself to it, you know, to really think about it, really imagine you know, what the issues are as he has a conversation that sort of 
blossoms into this concern over over racism, over sexism, over you know racist sexism, you know all these things that are happening in in the space of you know six lines. Actually, one thing I don't know why exactly what you just said reminded me of this. I think it's you know important for us to keep in mind is that during this time, Noah was a member of the group I mentioned, Sojourner Truth Organization, mm-hmm. except that there was a, a local, that's probably not the word they use, a chapter or whatever, okay, mm-hmm. of that organization that was centered in Gary, Indiana, okay, not too far from Chicago, but not in Chicago, people who worked either in the mill or in other places around the mill. Uh, and the kind of and they published a, a, like a, a local newspaper called the Calumet Insurgent Worker, which is talked a little bit in, in the book. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to emphasize is that Noel was able to do a great deal of what he did by himself. But he, there's also a great deal of what he did that he was only able to do because he was a member of a group that was incredibly kind of fruitful for all of its members for a while, at least. OK, in cultivating their own talents, interests, sensibilities, and ways of looking at the world uh, better. And I think that the organization w- would not have been what it was. And, and, and it was a very important organization without Noel, but Noel would not have been who he was without the organization. If you find yourself standing at the end of your line, looking for a piece of something, maybe a piece of mine. That I've lost and run down Nowhere to hold on Tired to take your place at the end, son Get to you one by one No lie It's time for another break. This is Grindstone from the Uncle Tupelo album March 16 to 20, 1992. In our next segment, we'll find out a little more about the Sojourner Truth organization and Noel Ignatiev's role in it. Stay with us for more Unacceptable Men when Interchange returns on WFHB. Every hour will be spent Filling a quota Just getting along Handcuffs hurt worse When you've done nothing wrong No thanks to the treadmill No thanks to the grindstone There's plenty of dissent Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is about Noel Ignatiev's memoir, Acceptable Men, Life in the Largest Steel Mill in the World, published by Charles H. Kerr. We now turn to the Sojourner Truth Organization, which, as John Garvey noted, is an essential aspect of Ignatiev's work and life. And to do it, we're talking to Michael Staudenmeyer, author of Truth and Revolution, A History of the Sojourner Truth Organization. 1969 to 1986. Mike, we're going to talk about his memoir, Acceptable Men, um, but before we do, uh, let's 
I guess let's talk a little bit about your work on the Sojourner Truth organization, because uh, in the memoir, Noel does talk a little bit about its formation and what its intentions are. Not very much. Um, the book is uh, a light touch in a lot of ways, but this is something you've studied quite a bit. You've, quote unquote, written a book on it. Uh, so the Sojourner Truth organization, uh, often referred to simply by its acronym STO, was a small revolutionary group based largely but not exclusively in Chicago um, that was in operation from the very end of 1969 until sometime in the second half of the 1980s. Nobody can quite agree what marked its demise. There was no formal statement of, you know, we're done. Um, And Noel was a member of the organization for all but the last maybe couple of years uh, at the very end. Um, Noel was one of the, the, the heavies, this group of three men, who were longtime members of the organization. The other two were Don Hammerquist and Ken Lawrence. Um, And they were all uh, intellectual powerhouses um, with lots of prior experience in varying wings of the left before they came together inside uh, STO. Um, And the organization as a whole did something that I think is pretty remarkable in the history of the left in this country in that it balanced a deep intellectual commitment to really careful, thoughtful, non-orthodox, non-rote attempts to understand the world in which we live and theories that might help us change the world um, alongside a powerful commitment to practical action. Um, And you can get a sense of some of that practical action from Noel's decision to take a job in the steel mill. And he says at one point in the book that he didn't even live in Gary when he took the job. He was still living in Chicago, but was so committed to the project of kind of revolutionary work at the workplace and in industrial, large, heavy industry settings in particular, um, that this was a commitment that he and other members of STO shared throughout much of, not the entire existence of STO, um, but much of the existence of the organization. This is an organization that maybe never had more than 100 members. Uh, You know, that obviously puts real limits on what you can accomplish practically and also on what you can accomplish in, in, in intellectual or theoretical terms. So STO, to me, was an inspiring Uh, attempt to combine those two aspects. Uh, When I was working on the book, Noel offered a line, uh, you know, he was full of these sort of pithy one-liners and and he offered a a line that for several years was the working title of my book. And in the end of the book is called Truth and Revolution. Uh, But Noel said what he liked about STO was that it was a group of revolutionaries who tried to think. Uh, to try to, um, I guess, uh, use an example from uh, the memoir in terms of, you know, uh, workers being not necessarily radical, but being in charge of themselves. Big Hickey is one of the the people in the memoir who's, you know, a senior member of some department and things don't work if Big Hickey doesn't want them to work, right? So there's no Mm -hmm. real, there's no real union involvement in it. It's that Big Hickey takes care of how the work goes. And if he gets upset with the bosses or whatnot, he makes things different. So the interesting thing is like, as you said, the creativity to do the work work to do it to do the work you can do as you can do it you know to come up with these these fixes this you know the sort of independent creativity of the collective in some sense you can see them working and working together in those ways and then you can also see them working against the boss you know working against the the company when the company says do what we say 
You know? mm-hmm. So it's like they get together to work against having a boss. So, you know, talking about this double consciousness is like, this is where we live. This is capitalism. This is the job I have. And what am I going to do otherwise? And at the same time, I'm going to do my best to really kind of subvert it without having those particular thoughts, perhaps, I guess, right? To say, you know, when you start to talk theoretically, you don't often talk to, you know, talk to people theoretically in the workplace, which is a really, again, a fascinating thing about this book is you can sort of read the theory into the actions that are happening within, within the book itself. So I don't know if that made yeah. sense. Yeah. No, it does. It totally makes sense. And I, I, I have a couple of thoughts on it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is, I completely agree with the way you're sort of rendering the terrain as it's depicted in this book. Uh, I really like the explanation of the night that they're working on uh, Noel's motor for his motorboat. Um, And, you know, it's this incredible amount of creativity. These are all guys who work with their hands. They, They kind of figure it out together what they're doing. And then there's this sort of ironic twist at the end where the well-to-do supervisor um, wants to play cards and then gets caught out by the, you know, the new guy in town is there to enforce uh, greater productivity um, while the rest of them all appear to be working, right? They all (laughs) appear to be doing important things. And, you know, I think that there are lots of these examples throughout the book and they're reflective of, but also I believe really did condition how Noel subsequently thought about these things, right? I, I met Noel after he had left the factory life and was already fully ensconced in uh, in an academic context. So I, I can't speak to how these experiences transformed his thinking. To some extent, he seems to imply in the book that he, you know, he came in already an avowed revolutionary. But one of the aspects of STO's political analysis that distinguished it from a lot of the, the rest of the, the Marxist or Leninist left was a rejection of a kind of facile version of Leninism where you know workers can only obtain trade union consciousness and it is incumbent upon uh, external revolutionaries to kind of help them achieve a, a sort of revolutionary consciousness. STL always rejected that. And Noel, um, at least as long as he was in STO and afterwards rejected it earlier in his life, I think he kind of bought into that analysis. Um, by the time he's in the Gary Works, he thinks that's nonsense, right? He is really deeply invested in this notion that, okay, it's all it's all there, right? The pieces are all there. The question is, you know, what will catalyze that shift in consciousness, right? This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Teaching a Man to Fish in a Steel Mill in Gary, Indiana, on the posthumously published memoir of Noel Ignatiev, Acceptable Men. Our guest in this segment is Michael Staudenmeyer, the activist and scholar who wrote the book on the Sojourner Truth Organization, of which Ignatiev was a prominent and influential member. I talk about this sometimes in the context of my, my wife, who's a Chicago public school teacher and a, a rank and file member of the Chicago Teachers Union, which is now sort of notable nationally for its militancy and stuff. The very first strike of the teachers union in Chicago in more than 20 years happened in 2012, right? As Truth and Revolution had just Mm -hmm. come out. It was fascinating to watch an example of something that Noel always talked about, which was how the consciousness of workers changes in the midst of struggle, of moments of struggle. The collection of teachers in the teachers union obviously have politics that span the horizon. um, And yet in the context of the strike, 
the worker mentality and the forms of solidarity became unmistakable, right? That maybe wouldn't have been there six months earlier and probably weren't there six months later. But in that moment of, of struggle, they really shone. And that was something that I think Noel was keenly aware of. And you can get these little snippets of that in the memoir. Um, the last thing I want to point out, it's another example from uh, something that he mentions in the memoir that he had told me this story in 2005, probably when I first interviewed him uh, for what became my book. You know, he talked about having been at some conference of radicals in uh, the labor movement and in particular in the steel industry um, and how everybody else at the conference would say, I'm so-and-so and I'm a member of local 74 of, you know, the United Steelworkers or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And Noel thought that that was ludicrous because he didn't believe that the steel workers, whether they were controlled by a reform caucus or not, were going to be the, the venue through which worker struggles would succeed. And so he sort of proudly said, I'm Noel Ignatin at that time, um, and I work at the, the Gary Works uh, of U.S. Steel. And that, that was, again, a distinguishing marker for Noel and for STO as a whole. There were other groups that were also involved in kind, this kind of work, and they also had some sense of interest in being in unions or infiltrating unions to influence the, the way the union worked. This is not what STO wanted. This is not how, how Noel thought was uh, that things would go, that unions are sort of a, a bureaucratic stopping point or a, a release valve. The notion of the criticism of trade unionism, right, and this this idea um, that trade unions are, are effectively a mediating force that will um, that will not lead to you know radical upheavals, but in fact likely prevent them. That's something that clearly distinguishes STO from almost all these other sectors of the left uh, to varying degrees. The CP, the IS, the RU, uh, and other smaller groupings are all deeply invested in the notion. Okay, if we can capture the leadership of X, Y, and Z unions, then we are going to be better positioned to uh, build a workers' movement. And STO says, no, that's not how this works. Workers' movements uh, have a very different metabolism from labor organizations. Um, they operate on different cycles of struggle. And the prospects for a workers' movement neither live nor die with unionization. You know, that's an easier thing to say in 1970 when union participation rates are much higher than they are uh, by the end of the 20th century into our present era. But I don't think that changed the minds of, certainly didn't change Noel's mind about unions. Noel didn't end his life saying, oh, we were wrong. We should have been more actively engaged in labor union reform efforts. Uh, Noel mentions also briefly in the memoir a set of stories that I heard from a number of people um, that I thought were really fascinating at the time about this wildcat strike of, of long-haul truckers in 1974, I believe, which really grinds the U.S. economy to a halt for about two weeks in uh, January and February. Um, because, as you can imagine, if most things that are shipped in this country are shipped on the backs of trucks, if they're not getting from point A to point B, um, it messes with supply chains. It messes with the capacity for, uh, again, for heavy industry, for instance, to operate if you're not getting the, um, the raw materials you need, et cetera. And Noel says in the memoir, um, something that a number of other people said to me when I, when I asked them about this, this particular uh, wildcat strike was uh, that STO was perhaps the only organization on the left in the entire United States that took this seriously as an aspect of workers' power, 
long haul truckers were by certain standards were marginally middle class or petty bourgeois, right? They're often owner operators, which means they weren't employees, which means they couldn't have had a labor union even if they'd wanted to have one in the traditional sense, at least. And so they're not seen as this kind of vanguard of workers that a lot of left groups spent the 60s and 70s trying to find. Um, But STO said, we don't care. We don't care that they don't look like our ideal notion of what the abstract revolutionary worker is going to look like. These are workers who are in motion. They are doing something that is radical. Noel breaks it down in two ways. He says, on the one hand, it was precisely because they were not uh, capable of being unionized that STO was kind of drawn to them, given their unique or unusual stance on criticizing unions from the left. And the other is that they were very militant and very focused on direct action. This is effectively a sit-down strike, you know, where the factory is the truck, right? That is inspiring to the members of STO, including to Noel, in ways that it's just not inspiring to a lot of the rest of the left that are looking for people in factories or, uh, you know, maybe in hospitals um, as their kind of ideal worker. It's time for our final break. This is Discarded, from the 1991 release Still Feel Gone, by Uncle Tupelo. When we return, how does one determine to become the kind of activist that works for decades in factories to try to change the world? More on Noel Ignatiev's memoir, Acceptable Men, when Interchange returns on WFHB. Adversity is stable, and life in front of you. Discarded, recycled, and new. Just can't stand to see things turned out wrong. No way to make things right. Never promise anything anymore. So goddamn hard to make it work. No easy way out. This one, always someone or something to get lost in the shuffle. This road leads straight out of here. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Teaching Amanda Fish in a Steel Mill in Gary, Indiana. And our text today is the memoir Acceptable Men by the late Noel Ignatiev, author of How the Irish Became White. For this final segment with historian Michael Staudenmeyer, we'll first ask what it means to dedicate one's working life to changing the world from within the factory, and we'll close with Ignatiev's use of the Socratic method to prompt a change of mind, especially over an SJP or Safe Job Protocol. (music) 
what I wanted to do also is try to understand uh, this sort of action of putting oneself into the workplace to begin to shape or try to shape the workplace, shape the people of the workplace, shape the conversations of the workplace, et cetera. So it's it's one of those things that, that I think, are, again, may be hard for, for some people to understand is that sort of um, act of employment, right, that is not about employment, right, not about having a job or getting a job and getting paid. You still need to do those things because, you know, most of these people, this is how they paid their bills also. Um mm-hmm. But that wasn't why they were there. They weren't there to have jobs and security and try to you know, make a living. They were there to do this other thing. Is there a way to talk about that so people understand that kind of activity? If I were to say to myself, I'm going to spend 10 years in a factory trying to raise consciousness, it would be a hard thing for, to, to convince myself to do. <laughs> I don't, yeah. you know, I'm not trying to joke about it. It's just kind of like, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, it certainly was not my experience. Again, coming of age a couple decades later, I was active in lots of different, you know, small collectives of varying sizes. Uh, and there was never a conversation of, of, of that sort, right? There was much more of a, okay, you can pretty much have most jobs that you would want. You can't be a cop, that sort of thing, um, and be part of these kind of radical collectives. Um, but there was not a clear link in that era between the kind of job you held and the sort of political work that you did. Um, and, you know, I think that as my kind of generation has uh, has grown older and moved away from, you know, whatever low-end jobs we could get that would pay the bills and allow us to spend more of our time doing activist stuff, for instance, I would guess that the vast majority of the people with whom I've stayed close have ended up in two employment fields, right? Either in education or in healthcare. But that's not the same thing as the kind of decision uh, that Noel and you know, literally thousands of other people in many organizations made in the late 60s, early 70s to take jobs uh, in these factories, right? Large factories in Noel's case, small factories in the case of Dave Ranney, who you mentioned. It's just a very different model. At the same time, Noel used to tell a story about uh, a guy, another guy who had been in, in STO who also worked in um, in Gary. But when STO underwent a, a sort of political split you know, this particular guy became more or less disaffected from the organization and and stayed in in the steel mills, right? And got kind of into the union reform world, um, and that became his thing. And, and Noel was always critical of that as well, right? He said it's important to be uh, what we might call embedded, but at the same time, from Noel's perspective and that of a lot of other members of STO, it was also important to not lose the sense of revolutionary politics, right? To not lose the the notion that something beyond simply the work is also necessary. And that's why I, I love some of the um, the vignettes uh, in Noel's uh, memoir and that are that are about things that happen outside of the outside of the gates, right? That are, that are not just about what's happening on the job, although that's the the primary focus of the book. It is hard for people in the 21st century to understand on a particular level, you know, the kind of commitment that's involved in saying, this is the sort of work I'm going to take on 
regardless of whether it's the kind of work I want to take on. And yet at the same time, I think there is a generation of leftists in the United States today. I think we've seen this, especially since COVID, so many radicals involved in the healthcare industry, you know, not necessarily because of a political analysis of the conjuncture, you know, in healthcare, right? Is is it a choke point for the economy or for society or whatever? More because A, it's a growth sector of the economy. So jobs are plentiful and available um, in a way that they're certainly not in most factory scenarios today. Um, And B, it's a job where people can feel some sense of doing something productive in the sense of helping others, right? And I think that matters to a lot of people on the left. That aspect was never really a factor for people like Noel and other folks. They took some solace, I think, in saying, okay, in the free society that comes after the revolution, we'll probably still need to make some steel. So, you know, it's this is a, a valid job, right? It's not like you're becoming an insurance salesman or something that won't have to exist after we're in the free society that we all want. But there was a kind of asceticism or almost a, a sort of martyrdom around, okay, this is this is the job. It's the job because this is where the people are, not it's the job because this is anything that I um, and personally excited to do. Now, for some people, absolutely. They're excited to, to work with their hands. They're excited to build things, et cetera. Um, but for most people who end up in factory jobs through the kind of political awareness that animated Noel's decision, um, that's not really the case. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Teaching a Man to Fish in a Steel Mill in Gary, Indiana, on the posthumously published memoir of Noel Ignatiev, Acceptable Men. Our guest in this segment is Michael Staudenmeyer, the activist and scholar who wrote the book on the Sojourner Truth Organization, of which Ignatiev was a prominent and influential member. The book uh, definitely is uh, a small slice of STO life. So, so if you come to one book of Noel, uh, Noel mm-hmm. Ignatiev's, and it's this one, which is a short mm-hmm. book, as you know, it's roughly 110 pages. It's 17 chapters. Uh, it's I, I find it extremely well paced, extremely well structured, poetically structured, even like the mm-hmm. the book is so small. And yet so big at the same time. I think it requires you to kind of figure out, you know, how to sort of think about the world that it takes place in, take the yep. action of each chapter and expand it uh, as, yes. best, as best you can. Hard to do. Most of us, in two, again, in 2021, can't really do that. Um, <laughs> you know, we can't really go back to 1973 or 72 or whatever it was to, to understand you know, the world, but the relationships in the books in the, in the book itself are so, I think, pretty well, um, written that you're able to understand that, you know, do you think it's sort of true to the, the person you think Noel is, was, uh, true to his analysis itself, right? True to the person you've been describing. Mm -hmm. And is it, is it romantic? You know, is the book overly romantic? Um, even, even in its thumbnail sketch way. Yeah. I I love that phrase that it's both small and large, Mm. right? That, um, you know, you are, uh, uh, this is especially the case because Noel was like myself, a a trained historian and historians are all about the footnotes Mm. and, and there's none of that in this book. This is, you know, as Dave Ranney says in his, his little intro, this could have been a novel, right? That might've been 
uh, its eventual home had no lived longer would have been as a, a fictionalized account. I love that it is it's with us as memoir, um, but the the writing is, as you say, I think novelistic in a, in a, a really positive way. I think it is absolutely true to Noel as I knew him, certainly. And so I, I think it's, uh, it's beautiful in the simplicity of the writing that still gives us this very full sense of these characters. And yeah, I was, I was, I was really pleased with the development that he gives to, to Jackson. Um, and it, it just made me happy to see that that was not a kind of passing reference as the, as the book went along, that it was a recurring, that he was, he was such a central character, as you said, sort of almost the, the Nolan and Jackson story. I liked that piece of it a lot. It's totally the Nolan Jackson story. I enjoyed it so much. And it's one of the, the interesting things about trying to read these and these kinds of books and think about them in the way you think the author probably wants you to, or to, to try to find a way that you think about it better, right? As, mm-hmm. uh, as one assumes Noel would want you to do. So when you, you sort of get into certain chapters and because they're so brief, you're able to say, now what's this here for? You know, what, yeah. you know, what's, what is this t- telling me about an SJP, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how, <laughs> how it does or doesn't work, you know, how it protects the company and not the worker, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, that was such a classic, that was so Noel, that it was very, it was the sort of this Socratic method that Noel used. He used it with me. I witnessed him uh, <laughs> use it and it, and it goes back, you know, the, I think perhaps my single favorite piece of Noel's writing ever um, is this short pamphlet that he wrote for STO called Black Worker, White Worker in the early 70s. And it draws on some of the same experience, talks a lot about life in the mills and life in Gary. And he had this gift for that kind of sort of confrontational thinking to see whichever of his coworkers now, I can't remember which one it was, fall into that kind of trap almost of, of thinking that the, the SJPs, of course they make sense. And if we all followed the rules, we'd be fine. Uh you know, that was just a beautiful piece of how Noel, how he argued. When when you were on the same side, you loved it. When you were on the opposite <laughs> side, it was really frustrating. Sour wine was the character. Sour wine, yeah. thank you. Walking only singing loud. Always try to sing it clear. What the hell are we all doing here? Making too much of nothing or creating one unholy mess and unfair study in survival, I guess. That's our show. We'll close with the last song from Uncle Tupelo. This is True to Life, another track from the 1991 album Still Feel Gone. Thanks to John Garvey and Michael Stoudenmire for joining me to discuss the life and work of Noel Ignatiev, as highlighted in his memoir, Acceptable Men, Life in the Largest Steel Mill in the World, published by Charles H. Kerr. And thanks to the late Noel Ignatiev for his contribution in the fight for labor power and the fight against white supremacy. The fight against the very notion that there is such a thing as whiteness. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. True to life is another hangover. True to life is more and more politics. True to life is always happening look over your shoulder. True to life is assembly line sickness, but it always comes down. What to do when it's all around you? And this tight wire act, leaving us here for dead news of the world.